Welcome to another episode of the Mo Show podcast. I have uh, Mr. Hassam Al Abiyad, uh, who has just moved into Saudi. Hassam, how are you doing? Pleasure's all mine. Great to be with you on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. Um, you've had an interesting journey. If we can just uh, start by back in the day, the upbringing. So really interesting story, as you said. Um, I was lucky enough to be born in Australia uh, in 1976. I, I look a lot uh, a lot younger for my age, but 1976. Um, and my parents decided for some reason, after three years I was born in Australia, to absolutely sell everything in the country and pack up and go back to Lebanon. And if we're looking at Lebanon in 1979, Lebanon was pretty much um, in the beginning of a war. I think the Lebanese civil war started around 1975, so things were quite warming up in the early 70s, uh, towards the late of uh, of 70s. And basically, my parents decided just to pack ship, sell everything they had in Australia, go against the stream when everyone was leaving Lebanon with Australian passports back to Lebanon for the war. And I've often wondered, uh, I think as a little child, maybe I was kicking and screaming, trying to get back on the plane <laughs> and not wanting to go back. But why would you make that decision? Um, and that for me, for quite some time until my former years was quite puzzling, uh, looking back. But 79, landed in Lebanon at the age of three, uh, lived in Lebanon throughout the whole civil war up until 1995, where my parents decided to go back to Australia for us to pursue an education. Um, to be honest with you, that part of my life was wonderful in a way. And you really don't know any better until you know better. And I think the going back to Australia bit really created a contrast for me uh, of the Lebanese experience versus the Australian experience. You know, a lot of us around the world, um, the lucky ones at least, don't know what it's like to live uh, in a country that is uh, torn by war. And um, and like I thank God every day for that. But just to hear someone, you know, having to have to deal with that, most importantly, making it out alive. Uh, is that something like, do you appreciate living in a country or, or having uh, a life of safety and security compared to what life was like between the ages of three to 19? I have never, ever uh, looked back at those days as negative days. Mind you, some of the experiences were quite horrendous. I mean, I remember uh, on many occasions that I was reminded to go to bed with my Australian passport and $100 US under the pillow. So just in case, if something was to happen to my parents, uh, that in the morning or in that day, I can literally get a taxi that will take me from Lebanon all the way to Damascus to the Australian embassy where I can just be safe. I mean, imagine having that programmed in the back of a child's head uh, as it's something that you must do. Um, so I think that sense of survival um, added a lot of value in my life. And I only got to see, uh, I guess, the fruits of that when I landed in Australia. Because uh, in Lebanon, you normalize it. You know, whenever we're asked to normalize things that shouldn't be normalized, there's a problem mm. with humanity. Of course. And then your parents said, okay, it's time to go back to Australia. You were all for that. You were like, yeah, it's something you look forward to. Look, the first thing I thought of, I was... Um, I was, you know, I was in love with a with a girl. I was really young. <laughs> and, you know, like you're at school and you're thinking, oh, you know, I've got to leave my friends and I've got to leave my family and this is the place to be. But in a way, everyone around me in Lebanon at the time that I was saying goodbye to my friends, I was saying, you are so lucky. And I'm looking at them going, why am I lucky? You know, I don't understand. I don't understand why I'm lucky. 
And the only difference really between me and a lot of people that grew up in Lebanon is not the fact that my parents brought me up well or the fact that I had access to education or the fact to anything else. The only difference was that I had a piece of paper that enabled me to have opportunity. That's it. The Australian passport. The Australian passport. That is the only difference. I guarantee you there are people in Lebanon and other war-torn countries that have got more capabilities than me, more abilities. They're smarter than me and they can do so much better for the world than me. But the only difference is they don't have the opportunity. Australia. You uh, then moved to Australia, a country I was privileged to visit. I went for my honeymoon. I did three weeks there. And I was like, why didn't anyone tell me about this country? It's, uh, it, remind me, it reminded me a lot of California, one of my favorite places. We don't want to tell anyone about it, Bala. We don't. <laughs> one of the reasons why maybe the population isn't as high. Like I did a bit of research on Australia leading up to this. I think it was 5 million Sydney, you know, two and a half Melbourne, Perth, Brisbane, one, one and a half. Like no city is, you know, seven, eight, ten million. You know, you know it's not like that. Um, I did Sydney, I did Melbourne, I did Hamilton Island up in the north by Cairns. And I felt, and I did um, Walgon Valley just outside of Sydney, three hours west. Yes. Um, and I was like, this is a, I could live in Sydney. Like it was such a livable, I feel like Australia is one of the world's best kept secrets. How was that transition dichotomy between where you were and, because you probably don't remember anything from Australia before you left. So going there and, and seeing, you know, what life was like, how did you uh, interpret all that? I think, look, the first year was very tough. And I think in adjusting anywhere in the world to moving to a new place where you're non-familiar with the food, non-familiar with the language and the culture will always present itself some challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, as you can probably tell, I've picked up the Australian accent and I, I picked up the Australian accent later in life. I mean, I was, you know, 18, 19 when I went back to Australia. Yeah, can definitely tell. Uh, but yeah, so like, I mean, I've had to adjust my Australian accent a lot in Saudi Arabia, which has been quite interesting. Slow down, tell us exactly what you're saying. Can you pronounce what you're taking? Mean, I've got friends that pay me out all the time about saying the word, the word mole, for example, like you mean like mole with a double L or an M-A-O, like shopping mole. So it's quite a, uh, it's been quite interesting to adjust to the tone. But uh, nevertheless, um, uh, I'm a little bit upset that you didn't get to visit South Australia. As far as I'm concerned, South Australia and Adelaide is probably, you know, by far the most livable city out of all cities in Australia uh, and a really an incredible place to visit. And, and all I've been doing while I've been here for the last two years is really talking it up to many people because it's, it is genuinely a beautiful city. Mm. Um, and look, the difference about South Australia versus any other city in Australia as well is uh, it's the free settled city of Australia. I mean, people talk about Australia constantly in colony form. You know, you guys belong to the Queen and, you know, all the prisoners were sent there and uh, Australia was a big fat prison uh, for, the, uh, for the English colony. Um, South Australia was a free settled city and what free settles mean and Australia is known as a city of churches Uh, and the reason it's known as a city of churches is because it's a city that really advocated for free speech that advocated for people's ability to determine their future Uh, a city that really focused on the rights of individuals that are escaping religious or political persecution or personal persecution to come to the country and make the make the most out of their life so social reform is on the number one agenda for south australia on many fronts i mean you know it's had its first indigenous governor for example in the whole of australia Um, it's had the first woman ever elected to parliament in the whole world in australia in south australia so i think 
that sort of stuff is quite important on how it defines South Australia as a city of uh, openness, inclusivity, uh, but also a very sustainable city, a very resilient city, uh, and a city that really celebrates culture, arts, and especially multiculturalism. Adelaide, yeah? Adelaide. So yeah. me heading back to, uh, to South Australia and Adelaide, that's where my parents were. I remember my dad leaving Lebanon probably about six months before we've arrived, and all he was sending me back to um, to, to to Lebanon was brochures of of uh, of university schools, and it was just medicine. As far as my dad was concerned, I was either going to be a doctor or not his son. Like these are the two options, and this is very similar language, I'm sure that many uh, many of our brothers and sisters very in the Middle East had yeah. to experience. Yeah. So I was Doctor Hassam at the age of twelve, as far as my parents were concerned. Uh, and when I arrived to Australia, my language wasn't as strong in English. And it was the first sort of um, year at the time where they were going through interviews uh, as part of the medical school. So I got my uh, my test. We have a GAMSAT test that I got a really high score in, scored really well at the school. Simply just didn't get the interview, didn't get accepted. So my second preference at the time was biomedical engineering and health sciences. And I figured I had the word medical in there so my dad can get off my back. And uh, so, you know, he could be proud. My son's an engineer and a doctor. So um, seven years at university. It worked, huh? It All right. <laughs> seven years at university. And uh, I have never used my degree in my life. Um, and we'll probably get to the career part in a, in a minute. But Australia for me, I think the minute I landed, I within a year, the first thing I did is I hung out with people that eat the same food I eat. That, you know, that speak the same language I speak. So I found myself around a lot of Arab communities. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. And I think that's probably a mistake and an opportunity in itself that a lot of communities that migrate do the same. I mean, if you go to Sydney or Melbourne, for example, you would find in areas where if you go into a shop, they'll say, Assalamu alaikum or ahlan bik before they even say, hello, how are you? Come on. It is so Arabized. It's beyond the joke. Like Lakemba in, for example, Sydney, it's known as Lebkemba because it's, you know, so Lebanese intensified. So you sort of look at that and you go, is that a good thing? You know, creating bubbles of communities of culture where they do not integrate with an outer circle. I think it's great that you can feel familiar in a place that's non-familiar, but in essence, that's not how Australia should be presenting itself to the rest of the world. And I don't think also as Lebanese or as migrants shouldn't be presenting themselves like that to the rest of the world. So I've worked actively hard on learning the language, mm -hmm. on speaking the same way they speak, but I was never prepared to let go of my identity. I am Hossam, and I make effort to explain to myself, myself to people when they pronounce my name. So all my friends don't call me Sam, they don't call me any other name, they call me Hossam. Because I felt I had an opportunity to also educate, to assist in, in, in elaborating. And, and I've, I've taken all aspects of Australian life on board. You know, I've, I've worked in Australia, I've educated in Australia, I, I contributed to Australia, paid taxes in Australia. I've done all those things because that country has given me so much opportunity. And in linking both, I think the deprivation of opportunity in the Middle East and in Lebanon, landing in Australia felt like, for me, low-hanging fruit everywhere. Mm -hmm. And literally like it was a sizzler all you can eat. Because like, because of the opportunities available to you. Because for me, landing, I was no longer Hossam, my dad and my mum are one, two, three, and I, my grandpa is this in Lebanon. I've landed in Australia and say, who are you? What have you done? How have you contributed as a person? And I think for me, looking at myself as an individual that can give back to the community was so crucial because I was no longer described by my family. 
I mean, my ancestry is important. My history is important and it contributes to who I am as a person. But it doesn't necessarily define me who I am today and who I will be in the future. So the fact that Australia takes an individualistic look towards you and assesses you on merit, on who you are, was quite interesting. With your name, Hussam Al-Abiyad, it's a very Arabic, obviously Arabic uh, name, even for those who live under a rock. Did you face any kind of pushback in terms of racial discrimination or, yeah, we don't want to give you the job, we're going to give it to them. I don't know what it's like to be in Australia. Sure. Did you face any resistance? Look, I think humans um, are quite um, diverse and colorful <laughs> on how they tend to express themselves and talk. I would never, ever judge a whole bunch of humanity and when we label Australia as a whole, there you're always going to find people that are going to be discriminate no matter where you are in the world. Um, and in Australia, personally, I did face discrimination. But discrimination for me was really faced uh, and probably put on my face heavily around September 11, because I arrived in Australia in 95, had a really good cruise from 95 to 2001, where I started businesses, became a bit of an entrepreneur, became successful in my own right in that sense. But around September 11, everyone started asking me this question, Hassan, what happened? What happened? As if you have the answers. So, so it's like, I have the answers. So I'm like, so I thought, okay, I could do two things. I can either be on the defensive and follow the approach of everyone's racist and the media is not listening to me. And the media is always proposing uh, a different approach and they're finding the, the sheikh at a mosque that is anti-US and anti-West and every, or I can take the approach of education. Education requires patience, requires civility. And education is about making sure that when you're trying to project to someone that you are right, that you also accept that they can also be right as well. Because for me, in determining a solution for any problem, it's about walking away as parties where we all felt like we've lost a little bit. That's where the win is. So unfortunately, a lot of people tend to want to fight with you or argue with you on a specific issue by proving that they are right, but by making sure to tell you that you are wrong. Mm. And you don't need to do that. So I found myself in situations in Australia where I was forced in front of a camera to explain what happened in September 11, to explain why the Islamic community is up in arms, to explain why every khutbah at a Jum'ah prayer is anti-West or someone that isn't anti-West. So division was occurring and media was playing a very important role in fueling that. And I think once you understand how media operates, then you're able to leverage the positive side of media because look, media and the voice of the people is very important, but you gotta know how to use it. Did you mention something about Friday prayers almost preaching negative anti-Christian things as a as a pushback and, and, and you had to um, listen to it and almost battle? I was kicked out of a mosque once. You were kicked out of a mosque? For what? And for, for simply just wearing a, uh, a, a yellow top that had a badge. I didn't even realize I put it on just to get the prayer on time that had um, USA on it. So the, the, the prayer, the, 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 the sheikh at the time, the imam that was giving the sermon, looked at me, stopped me in front of everyone. He said, what are you wearing this? And, you know, this doesn't represent our values and, 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 and. And I simply walked out like I just, you know, it was very embarrassing, uh, more so for him at the end than myself, um, but I left. Eventually that uh, sheikh was was weeded out of the community. I was going to say, and it's a bit of a dated approach. Look, there's, there's a lot of that. And this is what I'm saying. Just as much as we keep talking about the West and they're not accepting of us and vice versa, there is also elements in our own communities where we don't accept it. So I think you've got to look at your own backyard first before you criticize the outside too. And, and this is what I worked on in my own community in Australia 
every time the Islamic community wants to go up in arms about issues, I've always said to them, let's fix our backyard. Mm. Let's educate ourselves. Let's integrate. Let's talk. Let's have that conversation with the community. So with relationships, you're able to bring people closer to you where they'll understand you. And back to the point you brought in the very beginning, that soft diplomacy, the food, the culture, the art, bring people over, invite them. We have incredible hospitality as Arabs. You know, get them into your homes, get them to understand you, get them when they go out to the public in their own work to say, I have a friend called Muhammad and, you know, he's awesome. I know. What are you talking about? And I have a friend called Khadija and she's the same. She's incredible. Yeah, I mean, different this, to what you heard from the, because, from the media. You know, at the end, uh, you can advocate as much as you like. You will always be biased. At what point, Hassan, did you decide that you want to run for public office that led you to becoming the first Muslim elected in the state? So this was an interesting one. So for me, um, I uh, I guess I created a bit of success in business. And on the back of September 11, I've won some uh, local and national awards in leadership that gave me a bit of a platform to talk about our community, to talk about business and to really interconnect things. So, um, you know, I was an entrepreneur. I've always started businesses, always engaged in businesses, uh, which really sort of enabled me to engage with many communities in a very short period of time. So I approached at the time many people and everyone said to me, you should give this a go, you should give this a go. Um, and I remember walking at the time petrified to the office of the Minister for Foreign Affairs, the longest serving Minister for Foreign Affairs in our country. His name is Alexander Downer. Never met him. I was always been a critic of him uh, because of his policies, uh, foreign Australian policy around the Middle East specifically. He listened to me for a good hour while I was talking to him, asking his for his support uh, to support me as a candidate for the Liberal Party uh, of a federal seat in Adelaide. I wasn't successful in that pre-selection. But nevertheless, he wrote to all the membership after I left that meeting, asking them to support me. A person that I did not see eye to eye with, but he believed in me and he believed in my sentiments. And until today, I will never forget that. He literally, as the Foreign Minister of Australia wrote it, and he took the biggest risk because he was on the first page of the paper nationally supporting the first potential federal member for um, to be Muslim in the whole of the country. That's crazy. And for me, that was a time where I thought, where else in the world, yeah. what other country in the world you would get this, yeah. where you can sit in front of someone that you didn't align with, you didn't see eye to eye with on some issues, and he would still back you, still support you and take you through. So after a failed attempt at that, and there was a lot of racism and a lot of lash out, and I was running for the equivalent of a Republican versus a Democrat. So we're talking conservative, liberal party. So on the back of that, on that failed attempt in the federal uh, pre-selection for, for the seat of Adelaide, I ran for the city council. So in essence, we have capital cities in Australia. So it's a very prestigious sort of uh, position. And especially um, Adelaide, it's the first sort of incorporated capital city uh, out of the whole of Australia from a you know local council perspective. Um, so I put my hand up and I ran the whole campaign with the name Hossam. And I was determined. I mean, we've got in our in our city, uh, the, the, the potential voters are over 20,000. So imagine the amount of doors you have to knock. And every door you're knocking, people are asking you, sorry, who's that? Uh, Hassam, who? Hassam, who, who, what? I had to spend the first minute of every door knock explaining to people who my name, who my name is, what my name is. I couldn't get myself, Muhammad, on the life of me to say Sam. I couldn't. 
I could not door knock and say, my name is Sam. That's, that's, you're, you're such a G, by the way, for that. Because the easiest thing for you to do, Sam White, of course. <laughs> Very easy. Everyone told me to do it. And I was like, no. If I can't break that, mirror, that glass ceiling, if I can't do that, then someone else will. But at least I'll get to crack it. At least I'll have a go at it. And I promise you, every bit of sentiment I had, every bit of sentiment I had, where I thought people were racist, where I thought people would not support me, where I thought people are not inclusive, where I believed the words of the media that this is not an open society and things are not going to work out the way that I thought would work out. To much of my privilege, I was elected. But this has been my experience in, in, in South Australia and Adelaide, where looking at the past, looking at the present and the future, there is always elements of inclusivity and acceptance. It's just sometimes we choose not to see as a community. And I think if the proof, as we say in Australia, the proof's in the pudding. Um, I was elected three times. So I went to the office in 2010 and again in 2014 and again in 2018 before I came here in 2020, where I was elected three times, which for me goes as a vote of confidence from the community that supported me, which I'm, I'm thankful for, to say to me, you know what, we trust you. Mm and we know you and we know now your name and we know how to say it <laughs> and everywhere i went and we're, uh, not, and we're not afraid of that and you know what's incredible name of how accepting things are i'd go to events and usually they would give a speaker a bottle of wine or whatever mm. they'd give me a box of chocolates they would make sure where i'm sitting in the community there isn't a glass of wine in front of me that's the sign of respect, respect. i've received from australians respect that i never thought would be possible um and for that I'll forever be grateful. And for me, although I come from a Lebanese heritage and my parents are Lebanese, Australia for me is the country that made me. Mm -hmm. It gave me all the opportunities that I've ever dreamed of in my life. And to be honest with you, I was supported by a community that was so diverse, different religious groups, different different ethnic groups. I've got German friends and Australian friends and English friends and Greek friends, so many, um, and not to miss out on the Italians, imagine the Italians as well, but so many Melting that pot. just, because for them at the end, uh, and we use that we use that word a lot in Australia, and I, I, I had the opportunity to, to, to chair the National Day uh, in our state. So we have a, an organization that chairs the National Day every year, which is celebrated. And there's always the conversation of Indigenous Australia versus current Australia versus what Australia means today from a multiculturalism. And the example I always gave on the melting pot is that we're not a melting pot. I've always given the example that we're a Greek salad. And when people say to me, what do you mean the Greek salad? I'm like, you know what? You've got the Kalamata olives and you've got the feta cheese and the tomatoes and the lettuce. And it's all so different, but we're in a toss together. Onions, my favorite. Onions as well. The French, you know, the, the Spanish onions. I'm getting hungry. <laughs> but the uh, And it works. And it works. And it works. And they're so different. So you're not, you know, you're not mixing and completely just eliminating the diversity. Um, so you then got headhunted to Saudi? I did. I remember the day, to be honest. It was uh, it was in January 2019. I received a LinkedIn message. You know, the many messages you get on LinkedIn that says, we want to have a chat to you about an opportunity. Um, and in January 2019 would have been three months after me being re-elected back, uh, back into the city of Adelaide. So I was like, you know what? What is this? Ignored it uh, throughout the month of Jan. Ignored it throughout the month of Feb. Um, started getting other messages. Then got a call, then got a call to my office, and I'm like, these guys are quite serious to have a chat. So my secretary at the time said, look, you know, I'll organize a, a, a conversation for you. They've called a few times. I said, sure, let's, let's do that. I'm happy to have a chat. 
So I had a chat. I mean, the first question he'd asked, look, what is this about? Uh, I would like to have your CV. Um, sure, but, you know, what's, I mean, look, I just got elected. Uh, I'm not looking for jobs. I'm here. And I was quite focused on the next uh, level after after being in local government is to step into state or federal to take on a, a Senate position or federal position. I mean, that was my trajectory and that's where I wanted to go. So I knew where I was going, was married at the time, you know, as well. So life is in Australia, houses in Australia, parents are in Australia. Everything. Homes in Australia, not going anywhere. So um, they thought, look, you know, you've nothing to lose. Please give us a CV. I said, what am I applying for? You know, where, where are we going here? Uh, oh, it's a Middle Eastern city. Can't tell you where. <laughs> okay. Uh, you, you, I'm intrigued. <laughs> but uh, can you tell me city, country? Can't tell you anything. Please provide your CV. I said, sure. Have my CV. So I sent my CV and I thought, you know, nothing will come out of it. A um, couple of months path. Um, uh, pass on. Um, I get another call saying, look, you know, you've been shortlisted. Would like to interview. I said, sure, happy to go through an interview. Can I know which city? No, you can't. We just want to have a chat with you from a consultancy perspective. And then if we put you through to the client, I'm sure the client will, will talk to you about it. So they did that, shortlisted a group of people, I believe at the time. And they put my name up to the to the client. And before they did that, I said, look, who? And they said, Saudi. I'm like, hearing a lot of great things about Saudi. Um, but, you know, I'm here, I'm positioned here. I don't know if I want to do anything, uh, you know, especially like Neom or any of the other cities. I mean, there's some incredible mega projects that are going on here, but I just couldn't see myself disconnecting from where I was on. I was on a clear trajectory. So um, she goes, Mecca. And Muhammad, I said, sure, what's the role? She said, city, city management uh, as an advisor for city management. And I thought, I can't begin to tell you. Like, and I heard the word Mecca. Um, I heard the word city management, which is something I'm very passionate about and I've been doing. And I'm thinking, and I connected that also to my story. Like, I've gone back going, hold on. I'm Hussam Abiyad, not Sam White. I've door knocked all those doors. I feel like I've been trying my hardest in Australia to change the public relation or the public sentiment of Islam for the 20 odd years that I've been there. And now I've been given an opportunity to be part of a team that's led by a very passionate and a very visionary Crown Prince um, to be part of that change where we can affect the public relation message of Islam worldwide. I mean, imagine to 1.6 billion people. I thought, you definitely have my attention. Like, sure, let's talk. <laughs> let's talk. I want to I want to see what's going on. And to serve Mecca. I mean, what greater honor could you ever have? And I thought, look, it's no guarantee. Let's go through the interview. What happens? So in June, I got asked for the interview. Um, and in the interview at the time, um, I was interviewed by the CEO of the time. And we went through a lot of detail around the city, the needs of the city. And at the end, he asked me to come in for a visit in September after Hajj to just check out the place, see what I think. 21? Uh-huh. 20 or 29? Uh, 20, that's still 2019. 19. So September 2019. Just before yeah. Corona. So uh, September 2019, I came for 10 days. I met the team, met the CEO. And at the end of that trip, I got offered the position um, after some checks and balances, I'm sure, that needed to be done. And uh, they asked me to start the job as quickly as possible as a senior advisor for city management at the, uh, at the Royal Commission for Mecca and the Holy Sites. So I started work on the 29th of December 2019 eight weeks before COVID. And look, there was so many, so much uncertainty um, in the role. I was, I was petrified. I was scared. I was, 
unsure, new place, new country, new people, new rules. Um, how do you comfort you, zone? You know, how do you how do you change the you know your trajectory so quickly? So I thought I'm going to take time time off in Australia from my role. It's Christmas, New Year, so I can step away for a little while, and I'll come in here and I'll have a look. And I'm on a three month probation, so they might not renew me, and I might choose not to stay. But um, in the first few weeks of Feb, even before the, um, the the probation period ended, I'm talking before it ended by about a couple of months, and probably about three weeks before lockdown, I don't know what happened to me. I got up, I prayed in the morning, uh, I asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give me direction and to give me peace in whatever I choose. And I made the decision to call the CEO and say, look, I'm not leaving um, any other doors open. And if you look at my history, and we'll get to that in a minute, um, I have never put all my eggs in one basket. I have been the entrepreneur, multiple businesses, telco, hospitality, real estate, jumped into politics, board position, community positions, real estate, foreign affairs, involved in everything. And I kept everything floating. And I think that's the migrant in me of not putting all your eggs in one basket. And, and if all that fails, then I've got my education, which I never used. Okay, So for me, I've always got an exit, a door. So accepting this position and calling the CEO in early Feb and saying, I am resigning everything in Australia, my board position in foreign affairs, my deputy lord mayorship, my position, my seat on council, my seat on boards, everything. And I'm putting all my all my eggs in Mecca. There's a lot to leave behind. It literally felt like jumping off a cliff and building wings whilst I was falling. Okay. That's that's literally how it felt. Like I felt, you know, it was a leap of faith. Was it a calling? I am certain it was. Because what happens next <laughs> was out of this world. Mm. Two weeks later, I'm locked down in a hotel. Mm. For the better part of five months, okay, um, I had to deal with a whole heap of it. You no one, no friends, no family. I had colleagues from work that did an incredible job at keeping me sane. But... No support, no family, wife didn't end up moving down, everything just happened. Uh, and the uncertainty of not being able to go back, didn't see my family for two and a half years. So um, for me, it's like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said for this job, you need a person that has an Arabic background, that is Muslim. Um, a person that understands entrepreneurship and innovation where they can start from scratch and build things in an environment that is constantly shifting and changing. A person that's educated, a person that's worked in a government system overseas and understands good governance and has been in a city management sort of style of position. A person has that foreign affairs understanding and diplomacy. It's like my career that made no sense to me from being an engineer to why am I doing this, why this board position and everything else has suddenly made sense in this appointment. Come full circle. It's like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has somehow interconnected all those dots for me and took me on this path to land me in Mecca. And just when I thought that there might still be a line back to connect me to Australia, God has come in and gone, chop, which was the divorce, the marriage, said, you know what? No. That's insane. Stay here. So as of January this year, I'm a proud, hopefully, to be Saudi. <laughs> like, I feel like I'm part of the community. I, I live here. I absolutely love the place. I love the people. And I've had so many misconceptions before coming to Saudi Arabia about the place and about the people and about everything else. But it's been quite incredible, the learning curve that I've gone through and what I've learned about this wonderful place. But in short, that's been, I guess, the journey in, in how I arrived here. One of the things I wanted to uh, run by you was the preconceived impressions versus actual on the ground. 
coming here changed everything. Um, you know, I think for me, talking about multiculturalism, I think Mecca is probably one of the world's first multicultural cities. I mean, where would you have a city where people didn't speak the same language, converged on it once a year from all walks of life? I'm talking people from Indonesia and people from, you know, uh, from all walks of other lives, so being Pakistani or Indian or from the Levant or any from Arabia as a whole. Mm converged on it annually for Hajj, where they're trading, where they're socializing, where they're mixing in culture, in arts, in food, in marriage. I mean, that's been historic and it also predates Islam. I mean, if you look at all of that convergence around Mecca, for me, it would denote Mecca as probably one of the world's first multicultural communities and cities. And it really speaks volume of how diverse Mecca is, because even till today, you might drive 50 minutes from uh, Jeddah to Mecca, but it feels like you've gone back in time many, 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 many years. Uh, the, the cultures are still there. The craft is still there. The communication, the, you know, those adat and taqalid that are still involved and really ingrained in Mecca, I think, adds so much to its beauty. And although it's still a bit of a diamond and rough, you know, where there's still many things that needs to be attributed, it is the only city in the world that requires no marketing. You could have no infrastructure in Mecca, okay? You could have nothing in Mecca and people still come. And, you know, when you're looking at the social value of that and the economic value of that, it is second to none. Every other city in the world would be at the envy, at the envy of that, where especially now with such a, you know, empowering vision of Vision 2030, attracting over 30 million visitors for Hajj and Umrah to come. Uh, and really the whole economic strategy almost for the kingdom is pegged on the success of Mecca and the importance of Hajj and Umrah. Uh, the kingdom has heart, has soul, has purpose, uh, and sure, there's a lot of a lot of work that's still net, you know yet to be done. But there's a clear vision and a clear focus, and I think for me, with that kind of leadership, anything's possible. And that's sometimes all it takes, right? Mm. Is a vision because it mobilizes people mm. and it gets people to be passionate about what they do. And in coming here, talking about low hanging fruit, um, everything's possible. I mean, you know, new restaurants are popping up, a hospitality ecosystem that wasn't quite existent, now it is existent. Uh, for God's sake, in COVID, you had two Formula One. No other city would ever dream of having having that. You've had a Jeddah season, you've had a Riyadh season. You've had elements of activation in a kingdom that cities were planned for for years and have been delivered in very short periods of time. But look, for me, um, I have never met friendlier people. I have never met, um, you know, a community that is more engaged and rallying behind a vision uh, to support such a change that's happening in the kingdom. Uh, it's intergenerational. Um, it is so exciting and it's making such, you know, international uh, change and noise around what's happening in the kingdom. Uh, so I think um, everyone should be proud. Everyone that's working in the kingdom, be it, you know, the locals and the Saudis that have been here forever, the leadership, uh, and even the communities that have come in from overseas to assist and to help uh, and to create part of, you know, that change and to be part of it, they, they should all be proud. Because I think, you know, the work that's happening here on the ground is um, is, is is groundbreaking. You know, when you're when you're here on a daily basis, you don't like me as a Saudi. I, obviously, I see the change, but to hear it from a cold eyes perspective like you uh, gives me a second to just sit back and be like, wow, you know, it's... Uh, it's it's changed a lot and what's happening now is uh, is not like anything we've ever seen um not in, anything that any other country would have seen in the time that has, i mean yeah. the, the the amount of social reform that's undertaken the amount of construction and development that's undertaking the vision that's underpinned everything that sits with it 
I don't think any country in the world would have seen that happen at that short period of time. Um, What it goes to show to me, it means that the kingdom has been ready and ready for a long time. Because this level of change that's occurred, uh, it's underpinned by the success of previous leadership as well. Correct. Um, You know, I think the vision of of King Abdullah has been incredible around education. You know your history. You know Uh, your Saudi history. It's incredible. I mean, the fact, the education and how that was focused and underpinned as an important pillar of the kingdom is incredible because what it did, as a matter of fact, is it attracted everyone that was involved in that process to come back and serve their country today, be it that they've worked in Saudi or outside Saudi. Uh, If those people were not available today, change would not be possible. So really exciting to be able to see that. Can we just also touch on the scholarship programs of King Abdullah? Correct. Uh, that started in I want to say oh five six seven. Correct. These guys, you're seeing the fruits of your labor. Big time. That investment is second to none, and mm. I don't think any country in the world have done it better. Um, and what it also did is it created diplomatic ties uh, with countries around the world that have never been created before. I have made uh, contact with so many Saudis that actually studied in my city. Um, there was over 100 students. I used to have iftar with them. Uh, we used to catch up with them. No in, way. Uh, in, 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 that's how I knew about, about the education program. Uh, and the fact that these people were interchanging, interlinking, were also creating bridges with those communities. That's I right. mean, eventually, those people, when they come back, they may be doctors or engineers, or they may even end up as ministers in, in, in cabinet, yeah. in, in government. And here. this is just in Adelaide, 100? That's in Adelaide. A lot more in Sydney. So more in Sydney, yeah. so much more in Melbourne. Um, and so much more in Australia. And we've got a population of students in Australia of close to 50,000 in Adelaide alone. Uh, so uh, a significant number of international students. But um, because it's part of our economy. But the um, the Saudis that were there, uh, it was incredible to meet them and connect with them. And that was my first interaction with, with Saudis. I've had the opportunity to meet your ambassador there also on the ground. I've had the opportunity to meet your soccer team when they played against Australia, mm. uh, when they were in Australia as well. I think we won. Uh, that game zero zero. I think it was yeah. It was it was even. It was a qualifying. Yeah, so, yeah it was a qualifying. It was a. So I think overall, uh, what has happened in in the pipework, be it by chance or by plan, has served the kingdom really well, uh, and it's really sort of repositioned it uh, towards what would be, I think, a very successful future. Mm. So there was a picture that went viral uh, during Corona times. Twitter it trended on probably number one in Saudi for a few days. It was a worker, one of the guys that sweeps the ground in the Grand Mosque in Mecca, the circle. Mm. And it was smack in the middle of COVID when no one was in Mecca. Scary. So, and actually one of the hashtags was the end of days, the end of the world where it's one person in Mecca, post-apocalyptic feel. And I was looking at it and I was like, it's not... You know the number one businessman it's not our number one football player it was him and i'm going to put it up in the episode it was him no one in a space where there's a million people normally and the kaaba um and i was like isn't that something you know how much would that ticket have cost in real life someone said okay you get a chance to be on the sahan or the plate uh just you and no one else how much would you pay for that I think I think some people would pay close to a billion reals for it for that ticket. Just me and that for an hour. And here's a guy who doesn't have much to his name that got a ticket that many people would have paid a billion for. Not to go on an even longer rant, but mm-hmm. but before we started shooting, you mentioned something about you having an opportunity that was similar to that, where it was you, the Kaaba, Corona times, no one around you. 
what on earth was that sensation like? I think going to that person you mentioned before, the cleaner, uh, it's subhanAllah, I think it's all in the yet. It's all, it's what's inside their heart and, you know, what they've wished or prayed for, what they thought that they've somehow ended up in that place on their own at that moment where, you know, the whole world got to see them. Uh, and I think you just don't know what's in his heart and how he sort of operated in that sense. And I think many people would have had a similar opportunity, be it security forces, they were in Mecca, the cleaners, the people that were maintaining the place in that period to, to experience something very similar. But to your point, what someone would have potentially donated to charity or did something to have that opportunity there on the ground, it's impossible. I mean, you cannot empty that plate on any given day. I mean, you know, unless you're doing significant maintenance or there's risk or whatnot, that it's just not possible. I mean, I don't look back at one picture of the Kaaba anywhere in history where there's where is that. I mean, there's been some development that was done or built or whatever, but a moment where history paused and time stopped hasn't happened it just hasn't happened it and brought depression to many people i spoke to yeah. because we, we are not used to seeing that it's sad it we're not used to seeing to that watch. image yeah but the reminder of it all and look for me i've reflected often on on the opportunity i had to be you know what i consider probably the most valued photo in my phone um of me with the kaaba alone um, and I can't begin to tell you the feeling you have, like you're sitting there, you're looking at it and you're imagining what has humanity gone through? What have we experienced? Why am I here? That reflection, that self-thought, um, you know, you having insecurities about life, the things you're sure about, you're unsure about, asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for direction to be there on your own in front of the Kaaba and have that conversation with yourself and to God directly. I don't think there's a feeling that beats it. Um, and I... Yeah, if everything has gone wrong for me in that sense, uh, for the journey and the job and things haven't worked, the fact that this was a moment I had personally as Hassan Abiyah to be in Mecca and have that and do that and be of service to the place. And and, this, and the place has paid me back with that little reward of just being there on that day, in that hour, in that minute with someone that, you know, thankfully took my photo. I wouldn't, I wouldn't believe it. Um, so... I think these are the things for me that are fundamental uh, in, again, going back to the silver lining. Uh, look, you know, Allah does not forget anyone. It really doesn't. You know, I think one way or another, you get your reward. Um, you know, you really do. You get your reminders. You get those, you know, those light globe moments. You get that spark, uh, especially when things go dark. Um, I've had the opportunity to go to Jabal Nur um, and also uh, sit in Ghar Hira. Uh, where, where the Prophet والسلام, has received messages of the Quran. These are things that, you know, you would never experience in life. You read about uh, it. Yeah. So I, I was, it's quite an incredible moment. And like I, for me, I, I would do absolutely anything to, to have the opportunity to, to feel what I felt on that day. Not many people can say that. They can't. Were you always spiritual? I've held on uh, a lot to my faith and it's sometimes for the wrong reasons. Um, and what I mean by that is sometimes you use faith uh, uh, to, 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 to get you to float as a buoyance in water when you feel you're drowning. And sometimes you use your faith um, as a plane to take you places. Uh, and it's sort of your choice on how you manage that. Um, I've, you know, thankfully, I've always prayed. Um, I've, I've, never, I've never had drinks. I've, I've always been you know, mindful of that. But I think that also had a bit of a double-edged sword because for me, living in a Western country, everyone always respected that. But because quickly on as well in September 11, I was a Hassan, the Muslim, 
I wasn't going to ever appear in a situation where I would be, um, I guess, a hypocrite about what I believe in and my faith. So it was important for me to preserve what I felt. Although sometimes I, I wouldn't lie to you, I would have had doubts. I would have would have liked to you know to do things and whatever. But nevertheless, uh, it's the course I've chosen, um, and so far I think it's um, it's paid off. Like I think I'm comfortable with my decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How much longer do you see yourself uh, being in Saudi, working in the capacity that you're working in? Mm-hmm. It's Australia on the cards. It's going back home to Lebanon for a real full circle. You also know, on the cards. I, I don't. It's so difficult to answer some of these questions because for me, I don't know if I've ever felt home. You know, like in Lebanon, I was Australian. Um, in Australia, I was Lebanese <laughs> and I'm Muslim. In Saudi, I'm non-Saudi. <laughs> I'm becoming Saudi though, bit by bit. You know, I'm trying as much as I can. But I think home is where the heart is. And you know what? I think as a community, especially with this current generation, I think people are identifying a lot with home uh, more so um, as a place where, you know, it can also be for now. You know, home doesn't necessarily need to be forever. But for me, this is home. Uh, I mean, I have made the decision post coming back from Australia in January 2022, so a few months ago, to move all my belongings here uh, post my divorce, uh, post of leaving my job to be here for the last two and a half years that Saudi's home, that I'm here. I'm here for um, for a while, um, you know, for as long as I can. Uh, the fact that I am privileged and humbled to be offered to contribute some of my skills to the place and to be walking hand in hand with, you know, my Saudi brothers and sisters to, to, to assist, to work, to learn so much from them um, and to feel that everything I'm doing here is is appreciated as if I'm one of you. So interesting. So it's been, I feel like because the place is still in development, there is so much in, incredible work that's been happening. I feel like my contribution has been um, supported in a way to be able to add value, to catalyze some of the things. So for example, instead of something happening here in five or six years, we're able to do it in a year or two because of some of the testings, experiences that myself and people similar to me that would have had overseas. You, you have the blueprint. Yeah, so it's 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 home. Um, I can see where the kingdom's going. It's quite exciting. Like I can see the stages that it's going to go in from, you know, um, storming at the moment to forming. Um, you know, it's gone through a significant change culturally, socially, um, and seeing that sort of evolve into a place of stability um, is going to be very exciting. And it's in that stage of storming where everything is happening at the moment. This is where innovation is born. This is where failure is celebrated. This is where success is made because of trying and trying again and having that vision and having that clarity to keep trying. Uh, I think this is where innovation is uh, is at the, at the core of it all. Um, and I think uh, that's not being stifled by the leadership. And that's what's really exciting. Uh, the fact that the leadership is encouraging of that. The leadership is trying as much as it can to focus its vision and enable its community to go out and deliver um, that's very exciting um, and i think i'd like to be part of that for as long as i'm welcome to be uh, and uh, it's been awesome to be home yeah. would you say that you have something today that you dreamt of as a child ah god i look back um as a child i uh, i used to I just wanted to be happy, and I think we really don't um, we don't put we don't put enough value on that. And I think value is not measured by success. 
uh, value is not measured by by money and and by you know by the groups of people that are around you. I think happiness is really sort of measured by self contentment. Uh, and 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 I fight myself every day to get there, uh, and I challenge myself every day to get there. Um, and some days I'm there, some days I'm not there. <laughs> but uh, I would relatively say that I'm happy, and I I think that for me has always been a dream to to be at a place where at least I'm satisfied, I'm happy uh, in who I am as a person and what I've evolved to be, and my con- my continuous evolution uh, as a human being. Uh, I think as long as it has happiness as a dividend attached to it, I would be I would be extremely satisfied with that. Does anything scare you? Uh, something that you are fearful of? Um, what's something that, or let's say, is there a fear out there that you would like to conquer? It could be something as silly as sharks or, or more intricate. Is there something that you would like to get over as far as fears are concerned? <sighs> um, I mean, look, you know, we all get scared of different things in life and we're all fearful of different things. Um, I think I would be extremely fearful to lose faith um, mm. and not just in myself, but humanity. Um, I think seeing where humanity is heading on, on many levels really scares me for future generations and that lack of responsibility on many, many factors. My biggest personal fear is being alone. Um, I think I... Um, I struggled with that a lot and I think that has a lot to do with my childhood um, and I've never been alone I've always had noise around and I grew up in a place where my mom has you know eight sisters and two brothers and dad's the same and you know massive family and I'm with 32 cousins just on my mom's side and I don't need friends because my family is my friends and and then I've lived my whole life with that noise um, and I'm proud to say that I've managed to conquer that a bit in the last two years because I've been literally on my own um, and it's been very difficult to accept um, as a person that's an extrovert, as a person that's very socially engaged. It was very difficult for me. Uh, so I've had many, many dark moments where, where you know, I think for me, that fear of feeling alone, being alone for me is not a very comfortable feeling. But I'm proud to say that in, you know, probably the last good 12 months, I've managed to conquer that. I've managed to start enjoying sitting on a couch and doing nothing, being introverted, uh, watching a movie, not talking to anyone the whole day. Um, these are things that would have absolutely petrified me wow. <laughs> um, because it's just not something that I was ever, um, you know, born to to become accustomed to. Uh, and I think, and again, I'm not a I'm not a psychiatrist, but I, I think you know, going back at some of the war torn conversations we've had earlier, I think that really sort of connects directly with the feeling of being alone. Like, what if you've lost your family? What if you've lost your friends? What if you know everyone around you is been bombed or you know you've been taken away from your home and I think that probably is at the core of how I feel today or how I felt in the last couple of years but um, I think I've been going through probably the best way to explain it to you and I think a lot of people talk about this it's not about learning new things it's about unlearning things Uh, it's about how do you go back to the past at moments in time and you recalibrate your thinking with new facts and new ideas that weren't prevalent to you at the time. Uh, and that's normal because as humans, we grow. Um, and as we grow, we'll learn new things. Um, and hopefully as you grow new things, those things that you grow and you learn to know doesn't necessarily change your present and your future, but could only change your past. Because I think if we're able to change our past, which a lot of people don't believe they can, that could really have a positive impact on your present and future as well. And that's therapy, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's unlearning what you have been accustomed to doing all your life correct unlearning not yeah, learning new things correct and i think that that for me has been 
never thought I needed that, never thought that I needed to reflect. Uh, I was always a person that was driven, finish stuff and throw it behind you and keep moving. Yeah. I feel like this is turning into a therapy session. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, look, I think as humans, we need to acknowledge first and foremost that we are humans. Mm-hmm. And if we're humans, we will, we will err. And if we're going to make errors, we're going to learn. And if we learn, we're going to become better humans. We're not we're not too dissimilar, huh? All mm. of us. It's when you get to know someone on the surface. Hundred percent. We're not too dissimilar. And I think we all put up a facade as well of what we choose we for do. people to see. And that's okay. I mean, I think it's okay to choose to wear different clothes and you know to look different and feel different, and it's fine. But I think every every now and again, you got to face your demons yeah. and, and you got to face your inner self and answer some you know some real questions about who you are as a human and what you choose to be. So you meet Hassam at the age of 18, 19, when you were leaving uh, Lebanon to Australia. Uh, and you managed to have a conversation with that guy. Uh, what do you tell him as he's about to embark on the journey that you did in Australia? Do it quick. You know, I think we think we have time, but we don't. Um, and I think take more risk try things you don't have to sit down and plan for a year or two or three like go out give it yeah you know your utmost best uh, failures part of success it's part of the journey and uh, go out go out and do it uh, and i think that's the kind of advice i would have given my younger self to actually not be fearful not be scared to, to give things a go to do it in a shorter period of time and don't necessarily sit down and dwell about you know the planning side as much as the execution like of course, pay tribute to planning and risk manage, but go out and try things. And I think that's the kind of advice I'd, I'd definitely give myself mm-hmm. as a um, as a younger person and that's embarking on on the change. But that's sort of on a, I guess, on a professional note. On a personal note, it would be um, don't be too harsh on yourself. Were you? A bit. I think it has a lot to do with upbringing as well. And look, I, with every bit of respect to my parents, I love them uh, so much. Um, and they mean the world to me. But, you know, there's always that, as the older child, there's things instilled in you about, you know, guilt, the things you should do, you shouldn't do, um, the expectation that you should always be at the top of your class, the expectation you should always be a doctor, and the expectation you should marry this person and have these children live here and do that. And I think the world around you builds so many expectations. And granted, for the people that don't matter, you don't listen. But the people that matter, like your parents, your family, you tend to. Uh, and I think those things can have an impact on you um, and can have impact on your life where you don't end up sharing enough with your parents. So I didn't share enough with my parents. I didn't share enough of my pain. Um, I didn't share enough of my success. Um, and it was almost like a, I had a programmed face for my family where things are all going good. Everything's fine. You know, nothing to worry about. Everything's good. Everything's good. And it would be awesome um, one day. <laughs> to sit down with my parents and, and have that conversation. Up until now, I haven't been able to. I mean, every now and again, I'll try. But there's always bigger things. Uh, there's always things of more urgency uh, that they need to do with or things that are worrying them, be it about siblings and whatnot. Um, but yeah, I just don't think, I think I've become so harsh on myself, um, expecting so much, uh, where in matter of fact, why should I? Who's the person that really had like the biggest uh, effect on your life or um, like the biggest role model that you've had? Um, Look, I think watching my dad and mum, both of them, go through everything they've gone through, the self-sacrifice they've made. Uh, I think my parents have lived their life vicariously through us. Um, 
that kind of sacrifice I've never seen anyone um, ever do. Um, and I think for me, by far, they will always be my role model uh, as uh, as humans. Um, what I've learned though, um, throughout my interactions with many is you might have parents, but you, you also grow family around you of support and people and networks. I've had some significant influence from friends around me. And I found that the most of them that have contributed the most to my life is an, is an older generation of, of men and women uh, that have become mentors, that have become, you know, incredible sort of supporters of mine and have really sort of helped me do the whole thing I was discussing before quicker. Yeah. And I think my advice to a lot of people out there is, you know, find a mentor, find a person that you want to be, find a person you can learn from. Because in essence, what will take you 10 years to do, you'll do in a year, you'll do in two, and you'll have safety nets around you. Um, these are the kind of individuals I've had around that, that have really contributed to my life and have added so much value um, in, I guess, getting me to where I am today. Yeah. Mm. Looking back, any regrets? Is this something that you would have done differently? I think, you know what, um, I don't, I'm a bit of a creature for chaos. So like I know sometimes I make a mess and I clean up the mess and I work through things and I go and I think uh, a byproduct of that is a reflection. Um, so I don't tend to look at something as a regret, what I go, I really regret doing that. Mm. Because I think every course of action I've taken in life has opened a door. And although sometimes those doors are not delightful <laughs> and all things are pleasant and all things I've enjoyed, but they've taken me to a better journey and I've ended up on a better path um, somehow. Um, so I think for me, I would probably change the word regret to reflection. Uh, yes. and, and there's a lot of that because I think regret as a word, it means it's highlighting something you can do nothing about. Where if you reflect on something, I think it's an opportunity for you to make a change and make a difference in yourself. It's one of the best answers I've had. Yeah. Because I, I end with this question. To me. Yeah. So, so for me, that that's the core. The core is, you know, we don't want to be we want to be constructive, we want to be positive. And I think with regret comes a heavy weight and a heavy burden of matters that remain unchanged and matters you cannot change. So I think for me, reflection is important. Sure, there's a lot of things I've reflected on um, in my past that are done different. I mean, I remember sitting here in COVID thinking, have I made the right choice to come here? But that's what I reflected on in COVID. A year later, 100% I made the right choice to come here. Do you know what I mean? That's crazy. Uh, sitting in COVID thinking, you know what? Um, this has significantly impacted, you know, my relationship with my family, with my ex-wife, et cetera. I mean, maybe I should, you know, what if I can go back and give up all this? And Was that the right choice, the wrong choice? There is no such thing. I think with humans, we need to stop talking about right and wrong and yeah. talk about right and right. Because every path you choose will take you somewhere. Somewhere different. Somewhere with different methodology, somewhere with different learnings and somewhere with different experiences. But as a matter of fact, every choice you make is a good choice. It's just how you maximize the outcome out of that and how you will learn out of it as a human and what will become of you. And most importantly, how you would impact the community and humanity around you is the key and the most important. And throughout the dawn of time, the most important thing about this world is not how you get in it, is how you leave it. How you leave it. And how you leave it is not really about you and what you've achieved. It's about the impact you leave on the lives of people around you. And I think at the core of everything I've done, be it through my work, through Lebanon, coming to Australia, serving in government over there, serving in government here, serving the world's most divine city of Mecca, and having an opportunity to at least, even it's 1%, have a better impact on over 1.6 billion Muslims that look towards Mecca every single day, where they can say, you know what? Thank you 
for just making that slight change in my life and being part of that team to do that for me it's profound there is nothing there's nothing like it you can say to me now i'll take you to the moon i'll say no thank you i've been there have you been to mecca because i think for me that by far um supersedes anything that i could ever dreamt of yeah so i'm really really grateful for that um beyond beyond any words Uh, and i think if i could leave anyone with a parting message it would be think about the impact you have on every person you meet around you and the kind of life you want to lead and how you want to lead that life through them because i think at the end despite who we are whether we belong to a nationality a country a religion at the end fundamentally what matters to us the most which connect us to the very beginning of our conversation is how we live together as humans how we look after each other how we build communities and how we build generations of the future that have learned from our mistakes uh, and have done better for themselves because of our experiences this is a beautiful episode by the way it's fantastic thank you i will be grateful for you great 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 takeaways um because it's unique i mean you come with a very unique story um and you probably expected that the last place in the world you'd end up was living in Saudi Arabia. A hundred percent. And how you're calling it home now yeah. and how, you know, you want to, you see yourself here in the long term. Um, it's fascinating. It's very unique. It's the word that springs to mind. Um, when you look at business people, politicians, up and coming, these youngsters, is there a, a like a common piece of advice that you'd want to give them, um, you know, those coming up the ranks these days? always ask you a question you know ask yourself a question why you know why am i doing this and in the why you're going to find two answers one has to be about you has to be i mean anyone that says to me i'm doing this i don't care about the money or i don't care about this or i don't care about that there has to be something in the why that is about you and it's selfish but it's okay you've got to love yourself you've got to look after yourself and that's important but equally important to that muhammad is also the why for others yeah you know why am i doing that for me why am I doing this for others? Which really creates that sense of measure of how your actions can impact other people and how it could allow, you know, have that lasting effect on their life as communities. I mean, you might think today fixing a footpath or putting a disability access on it is nothing. But just imagine the amount of people that would walk on it, the people that, you know, will will use it and the impact it would have on their lives. Um, so for me, it's about, it, the why is always about, a part has to do with you because if there's nothing in it for you, you're not going to be passionate. Um, you're not going to be driven, uh, and and you know you're not going to be able to dedicate that part of your life for others. Um, so that for me is always that dichotomy in that conversation of just it's what's in it for you, what's in it for others. And if you don't get that equality and that mix of both, and you don't get that positive outcome, then the same answer would apply to why do it. Yeah. All right. So just it's everything. The why is everything. Just don't it? do it. Yeah. All right. So, and, and I think this is for me the focus. I think a lot of people these days want to get into these positions, uh, deservedly so um, sometimes, but mainly personal gain or, you know, mainly all community gain and eventually you burn out. Uh, so I think you need to keep the balance alive. Yeah. Um, and I also think you need to remember in the why to, what is this about? It's at the end, it's about the people. Um, you know, it's not about the wage, it's not about the salary. And I think, in the case of Mecca, and probably probably the only job in the world that would have that, you have Ajr and Ujra. You know, you, you have the, op- the opportunity to have reward on a spiritual level and reward on a personal level uh, as a human, uh, be it financial or be it, you know, educational. Um, and you would probably look far and wide to find positions like this in the world 
where you're able to contribute in that capacity. I see the passion in your eyes and what mm -hmm. you do. Um, and um, it's inspiring, honestly, because it's beautiful. Like you found, you've, you found, you. Your, you found your... Uh, yeah, it's like you're saying full circle. I, yeah, it is a full circle. I feel like if we'd had to do a, another episode with a guy about, you know, uh, love, pray, eat, or eat, love, pray. Yeah. It would be that episode. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like we had to pick a guy and do it. Definitely, this, this would be Definitely. it. Um, and look, it's been a, it's been a, uh, it hasn't been easy. And I think nothing, nothing comes easy. And I think it's fine to to go through hardships in life. And it's also fine to think that you know, there's questions that you would ask today that you don't necessarily have the answers for today. Yep. And the answers will make themselves visible for you in the future. But it requires patience, um, significant patience, and adjustments, uh, which is something you've done a lot of adjustments, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. a lot, a lot of, a lot of self-reflection. Yeah, I think yeah. that's that's the main it's issue. Amazing. Yeah. I have to thank you for sparing me a couple of hours of your time today. It's my pleasure. It's my absolute pleasure. It's my pleasure. Everything. To be here. I mean, Muhammad, you you have done. Uh, to be honest with you, without you and without your show and the ability to be able to uh, connect, you know, with a wider audience and and for you to tell the stories of so many incredible people that are Saudi, non-Saudi, living in the kingdom, contributing here. I think what you've been able to leverage, uh, to be honest with you, is that packaging of information and the packaging of stories that are personal to interconnect with such a wider audience. And I think the international effect of that would be quite massive uh, because you're painting an extremely positive picture, but also a very human picture. And, you know, you're talking about everything uh, and you're bringing it from a personal perspective. And for that, I'm grateful. And the fact that you were um, able to host me on your show for me is very humbling. My and pleasure. and uh, my it's, pleasure. it's my pleasure. And thank you for saying that. I'm glad you recognize the mission. Not many people do, uh, but the smart ones do. So I thank you for that. Um, and listen, uh, without people like you sharing so honestly and transparently stories of what they've been through mm -hmm. and, uh, and their journey, this is nothing. I'll be talking to myself. I've said that before. Um, you are the content. And... Um, and don't let this be the last time I see you on the show. Love to. Because with the pace of, mashallah, how you are uh, going through, uh, you know, your time in Saudi, there's, you come back in a year, we can talk for another couple of hours as well. I'm certain. Uh, it's yeah. amazing. It's, it's, um, it's amazing to see that someone who has nothing to do with Saudi, um, who has never been to Saudi, is all of a sudden calling it home. Mm. You know, and, and if that's not a big takeaway from today's episode, I don't know what is. Uh, and I'm glad that um, the country has made you feel that way. Uh, and I'm glad you have seen what many people don't. I just remember something that I wanted to say earlier in the episode. Um, and I remember that right now that there is a lot more happening on the ground here than is available online about Saudi. Correct. You, you Online, you might see, oh, okay, that, but, but you come here and you just see how all of a sudden festive it is you know what i mean so actually better to to exp so if you were to like google australia or us you'd see all the you know mm -hmm. the colors and, and and activities and you go there you experience it over here no it's actually better to experience it than to google it uh and um and it came to me earlier on when you were talking about uh you know the the, the festivals and the, the season and the reality season and all that and my advice to 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 us, I mean, all of us that are here, is to own the narrative. Yeah, own it. Tell your story. Um, I'm sick and tired of other people tell our story. Yeah. You know, tell what yes, they sir. think the kingdom is doing. Yes, to sir. think what the project is doing. To yeah. think what this program is doing. No, it, it is time that at some level owning the narrative is important. Um, and every country around. I mean, look, you know, do you want to own the narrative better than Hollywood in the U.S.? 
Um, I mean, that is an extreme of fabrication of owning a narrative and, you know, going through people's homes through movies. But own the narratives. You have rich history. You have rich agriculture. You have rich, uh, you know, multiculturalism in your country. The regions are absolutely incredible, breathtaking. I mean, you you look at some of the stuff and I've been to only limited places like Taif. And, you know, when you go to Riyadh or when you, I was at Jabal Hanifa, uh, sorry, Wadi Hanifa the, the other day as well in Riyadh. And there is breathtaking landscapes in this country that has been untouched. Untouched. Okay. Yeah, true. And if you do it right and you own the narrative right, I think the opportunities are absolutely incredible. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing that could beat it because at the heart of every community is its people. And you guys have the people, the yeah. culture, the people, the history, that sense of center Arabia sits here, it lives here, um, and the people own it. Yeah. All they have to do is tell their stories. On the subject of owning the narrative, one of the reasons why I started this platform is so that I tell people about us. I'm not leaving it up to others to tell us about us. You tell us about you. For the longest time, it's others telling their people about us. Of course. No, I'll tell you about us, and then you make your decision. This and, is, uh, and this that's is... that, that's the compelling bit because look, when you don't tell the story, someone else will. Yeah. And I guarantee you, it's not it's not how you like it. Yeah. Um, and it's always been the and look, I respect the approach of Kingdom for a long time, where basically, you know what. We don't need to talk about it. We do what we do at home. We take care of things. We'll sort things out. We work through things, and we don't need to worry yeah. about. It. You can't do that in a in a in an ever connected in an ever connected world where everyone's talking, everyone's tweeting, everyone's engaging. You don't need to convince people, but at least you need to put your side of the story, yeah. uh, and then the rest. But exciting times ahead. Truly, you guys should be proud. Thank you again. My I'll see you. Pleasure. I will see you again here. I look forward to catching up with you, even socially. It'll yes, be good sir. To catch up and Both. see what you're up to. And if there's anything I can ever help with, 100%. I'm always happy to, Definitely. to, to help. Definitely. So. Sam, uh, pleasure, pleasure meeting you, Thank honestly. You. It's been an I kept awesome you for a long pleasure. time. No, I really enjoyed this. So it's been really, really nice <laughs> what to, a talk, uh, to sit down and, uh, and get a bit of therapy. Yes. Yeah, so, well, likewise. <laughs> my trade, my, my uh, translator is going to enjoy translating this. Yeah. Uh, oh, they do the. Um, uh, yeah, yeah she goes, she does it. Yep, yep. If we need to help with the Australian accent, I'll try my. Hopefully she'll be okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks so much again for your time, thank man. You, much you, appreciated.